Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are continuing on in a sermon series that we've been in uh, for some time on uh, the book of Acts. We've called this series Purpose and Power uh, because that really is the story that we see in Acts. Uh, that Acts is uh, the story of a group of people who found their lives taken hold of by Jesus and a new purpose given to their life, the cause of proclaiming the gospel and living out and under his kingdom around the world and a new power filling their lives, the power of the Holy Spirit uh, filling them and giving them the power to, to live out of this new purpose. And we're going to see both of those invitations in our, in our chapter today. That just as uh, the Lord flooded that early Christian community with a new purpose and a new power, so he brings those things into our lives here in our world. And so this morning, we're in the first part of Acts chapter 8. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading today is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, whom came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit had been given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, 
because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Our passage this morning uh, presents us with a question. How can the church thrive in the midst of cultural upheaval and dislocation? That seems like a relevant question, doesn't it? How can the church thrive uh, when it finds itself pushed to the margins of its culture? When everything that once seemed secure and grounded now seems up for grabs? That is the question that the church finds itself dealing with in Acts chapter 8. You know, prior to this point in the book of Acts, uh, the church could have expected that they would find a footing at the center of their culture in Jerusalem, right? Think about what they had seen so far in the book of Acts, right? They had uh, seen the Holy Spirit fall and people uh, of Israel uh, scattered about the nations hear the gospel in their own language and come to faith by the thousands, They had seen uh, many people come to believe. They'd seen the growth of the church. We're told that they even began to see the priests of the temple begin to convert and come into the church. And so they might have expected that what was going to happen was that their question, remember at the beginning of Acts, they asked Jesus after, after the resurrection, but before he ascended into heaven, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel, right? Are you going to bring Israel back into power? Are you going to put your king on our throne? Are you going to help us to get up and over on the other nations of the world? And they could have expected in the growth of the church in Jerusalem and some of the temple even coming to believe, they might have been tempted to think, yes, this is the way that the mission is going to go forward that we're going to win our culture here in Jerusalem. And from this center of power and of tradition and history, we're going to minister out from that position of strength. And yet at the stoning of Stephen in our last chapter, and now uh, Saul's widespread house-to-house persecution and arrest of the church, what begins to happen is the church is realizing, no, 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 our mission isn't going to happen from the center out. Right? It's not going to happen from the top down. It's not going to happen from a position of cultural stability and power. That we are going to be, as, as, as Luke uses over and over in this passage, scattered, distributed out into the cultures of this world. And so the question is, how can the church thrive in a time of cultural upheaval and dislocation? This seems to me to be a relevant question for our, for our moment, right? I mean, we are living uh, through certainly the greatest period of cultural disruption that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Uh, perhaps if you lived through the 1960s, you lived through something that felt similar. Um, but this period of everything being shuffled at a cultural, political, social, economic, and class, and even religious level, 
People are experiencing profound senses that the ground is changing underneath us. And on top of that, church membership, religious involvement, has declined this year uh, going under 50% for the first time in the history of our nation. Right? It's actually, uh, the, last, uh, the last research showed that 50%, less than 50% of Americans are involved or members of any church, synagogue, or mosque. So forget just Christian involvement, religious involvement in general has ticked below 50% for the first time in history, and the numbers are far worse for millennials. So that's basically if people my age and younger. And so we're living through a period of upheaval and dislocation. Right now, we shouldn't be alarmist. We're not, uh, we're not living through what the early church in Jerusalem was living through. We're not under threat of being stoned. We're not under threat of being arrested. But all of a sudden, a church that had lived its life, for the most part, at the center of American institutional and social life finds itself at the margins. How do we respond? And Christians have responded in different ways. Some have reinvested themselves in the culture wars of the last century, thinking if we just up our volume and our effort, we can get back to the center. We can get back to the top. Others have uh, seeking to blend in and to find approval of the culture around have sought to, be, to accommodate to the wider culture, thinking that if we diminish Christian doctrinal and ethical distinctives, that maybe people won't notice us, that we'll blend in with our neighbors. And yet what we see in this, uh, these verses is something I think we need to hear, which is the, the, the answer to being pushed to the margins is to hear afresh the call to mission. To hear that each and every one of us has a missional calling. A calling wherever we find ourselves, in any culture of the earth, to align our lives with God's mission of loving our neighbors, living in his kingdom, and announcing his gospel. Uh, A theologian of mission, Timothy Tennant, uh, formerly of Gordon-Conwell, I think he's at Asbury Seminary now, wrote a book called Invitation to World Missions. And this is what he writes in that book. He says, the collapse of Christendom, Christendom's the word that will often be used for that alignment of religious, cultural, and political power that existed in the West, Europe, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, and in the United States, uh, for the better part of a century. But he said, the collapse of Christendom has left Western Christians in an uncomfortable position because most of us have no real preparation or precedent for how to live on the margins, counter to the culture. For the most part, we don't know how to think about mission without ourselves being at the center. Our long sojourn under the spell of Christendom has also meant that we found ourselves adhering to a rather domesticated version of the gospel. One of the legacies of Christendom is that it is willing to provide a safe haven for Christianity, but only at the cost of the steady domestication of Christianity, gradually smoothing down most of its rough prophetic edges so that Christian identity and cultural identity become virtually seamless. Today, mission, and indeed the gospel itself, have to be rediscovered in the West, apart from Christendom. 
You hear what he says is that over time, uh, there was this seamless merging of Christian and cultural identity, such that in America, for most of our history, people could go, well, are you a Christian? And you go, well, sure, I'm an American, right? I'm not something else, uh, so I'm a Christian. And especially in the South, right? If somebody asks, are you a Christian? Yep, yeah, what am I? You know, come on. Yeah, I, I go to church and I go to lunch and then I just, you know, the, 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 it was a part of the cultural fabric of the world, of the West. And he said that brought a cost to it at our mission to the world. And it actually brought a cost to us, right? That it, that, that it accommodated the gospel, but only with a watering down of the gospel. Only with an uneasy allegiance between Jesus and the prevailing gods of the culture. That it was more or less just a learning to live together. And so there's hope that comes when we find ourselves, as the early church did, at its margins. And so let's look at our passage today. First, we want to see... What happens when the, uh, when the church uh, finds itself on the margins is it begins to extend the scattered presence of the kingdom of God. Look at what happens here. Uh, where the, this word scattering is used a couple of times. In uh, chapter 8, verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then in verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so what happens is, as the church begins to be persecuted in Jerusalem, they actually begin to do the work that Jesus called them to do at the very beginning. Right? If you remember, of course, we have the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? That the gospel, the call of the kingdom was never meant to be, well, hunker down and get comfortable and stay in one place. It was always meant to be a going. And then what does Jesus say at the very beginning of the book of Acts? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, that's the region around Jerusalem, in Samaria, that's the neighboring region, and then to the ends of the earth. And yet it took seven chapters. For seven chapters, it looked like the apostles heard just the first part. All right, we'll be your witnesses in Jerusalem. Got it. And they never went to Judea, to Samaria, and beyond to the ends of the earth. It took this moment of being pushed out. It took this moment of being dislocated from their comfortable home. This scattering that began the going that is the Christian mission. right? Not waiting for the world to come to the church, but the church going out and into the world. With persecution breaking out against the Christians in Jerusalem, They begin to recognize that that culture itself, that home culture of theirs, within Israel, within Jerusalem, within their religious tradition, that they're not even really at home there, right? That if that wasn't going to be a home for them, then any nation, any culture becomes a potential home, right? That they can take their life and their message into the world. You know, we see this principle uh, not only here at the early church, but really throughout the history of the church, that when the church deals with external threats, when it deals with persecution, the scattering effect happens, and God's mission goes forward. 
It seems as though God's mission is more effective under adverse conditions than it is under cushy conditions, right? That it's when we're uncomfortable that we're the most alive to God's mission. One of the most famous stories of this in our century happened in the 1949 expulsion of Christian missionaries from China uh, after the revolution. The, uh, the, the new communist government of China uh, expelled all Western missionaries from mainland China. Uh, the Chinese Inland Mission was the largest of these organizations. And at, the, at this moment in 1949, 628 missionaries who had given up most of their life to move to China found themselves expelled from the country. So they packed up their things and, and left most were reassigned uh, through China Inland Mission to either Japan, Korea, Thailand, or India. So most of them were relocated and placed in a new field and, and planted more churches in those places. But uh, what shocked Christians around the world was that what you, they closed the country, they kicked out all of the missionaries, and by the time we got reliable data, a reliable look on what happened in China without the presence of Western missionaries... Uh, missiologists were stunned at the, at the growth of the church, that it had grown, the Chinese church, we, don't, we have trouble getting uh, accurate numbers, uh, but went from less than about half a million people in 1949 to, at our best guess, about 39 million Chinese Christians today. Now, it's China, so that's still 2% of the population. But there was an explosive growth of the church when resisted when pushed towards the margins. And so that's what we see happening here. These early Christians are pushed, they scatter, and with them they bring the good news of the kingdom. Verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Right? When you scattered the church, they didn't just go, okay, we'll go to Samaria, but we'll be quiet about things. They said, okay, we'll do what we were doing there as we go. So they go into Samaria, they're preaching the word. Philip, Philip was one of the seven, one of those early deacons uh, that were installed, we saw in Acts chapter 6. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. I love this. As they go, as Philip goes, he's announcing the gospel. Both in word, he's, he's saying the words, he's teaching the message, and in his life, in his deeds, he's healing sickness, he's caring for the hurting. Right, that he's bringing the message forward in word and in deed wherever God sends him. You know, Acts chapter 8 uh, in, uh, begins one of the words. It's the first use in Acts of a word that becomes important for the church's mission. And it's one that we can uh, kind of ignore. It's the first place in Acts chapter 8 that the word evangelize is used. It's the, uh, it, usually in, the, in your translation, it's where they say preach the good news. But it's one word in Greek, the Greek word evangel, euangelion, good news. What Luke does is he just takes a noun, good news, and he turns it into a verb. So we say preach the good news, but it literally just reads they went around good newsing. 
They were, they were gospeling everywhere that they went. They were announcing it, both in their lives and in their words. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant turn of phrase. That as the mission goes forward, the gospel goes from being a noun that we receive to being a verb that we do, right? And this is the, the way that the Christian life works, right? That we receive the gospel, right? All of our lives, right? The life of a Christian begins when you hear good news. When the good news hits your ears that God is not uh, holding your sins against you through faith in Christ, that he's forgiven your sins, he's made a way of forgiveness for sinners to be possible, for God's wayward children to come home to the Father. So it starts as good news that we hear, but the work isn't finished until the gospel becomes a verb in our lives, until it becomes something that we believe and trust and rest in, and then something that begins to reorder the way that we live, the way that we talk, the way that we love, the way that we live out our lives in our neighborhoods and in our families and in our workplaces and in our churches. We become people who live the gospel in the world. The good news to us becomes the good news through us. And then what's the result? I love this little tiny sentence in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. I mean, what a, what a beautiful way for us. Maybe we'll finish the sermon by praying that way, that God would bring joy to our city. Right, that through the church, not just our church, but the church, gospeling our neighbors, gospeling our workplaces, gospeling among the poor and the hurting and the downtrodden, that there would be joy in our place, in our time, as the good news of Jesus hits our city. So they bring the scattered presence of the kingdom. And the second thing we see them doing is crossing cultural boundaries. Philip is sent out, scattered, and he goes out of Jerusalem, out of even Judea, and into, of all places, Samaria. Now, Samaria, we should understand, uh, was, uh, there was a deep, deep uh, trough of division between the Israelites in the Samaritans, right? We see that uh, in the Gospels, right? As Jesus, uh, remember the story of the woman at the well when Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for a drink? What does she say? She says, how are you, a Jew, going to ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Right? These were two people who did not associate with one another. These were two people who lived with deep suspicion of one another. That suspicion uh, was cultural. The, the Israelites viewed the Samaritans as compromisers with the surrounding uh, Near Eastern cultures. It was ethnic and racial. They were uh, people who, um, so in the Old Testament, if you remember, there's the division of the kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and the southern kingdom. And those ten tribes get carried off into exile in Assyria and by the time they come back, or those who are left, they end up kind of just blending in with the Assyrians and everybody else. So they keep some of the culture and practices of Israel, but they also adopted and merged it with all of these other ancient Near Eastern practices. 
they intermarried and so lost their ethnic identity with Israel. So there was a, a religion, there was a, a cultural aspect, there was an ethnic aspect, and there was a religious aspect. The, Assyri- uh, the, uh, the Samaritans kept only the first five books of the Old Testament, so didn't have the prophets or the writings. They kept the, the, the Torah. And they also moved the center of worship from Jerusalem to Mount Tabor. So all of this is a lot of background information to say. When an Israelite looked at a Samaritan, what they saw was an ethnic other who had abandoned their faith and who had merged with surrounding cultures. And so they looked at them with suspicion. We know that there was a common prayer uh, that Israelite men would pray at the time that would say, God, thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Samaritan. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that prayer. Uh, but, but one of them is that there was this sense that if I were a Samaritan, I would be filthy and dirty. And so I think it's poignant that that is the first place that we see the gospel going at this scattering. I think the idea is that if the gospel can cross that boundary, if the gospel can bridge that divide, if the gospel can penetrate that culture, then it can penetrate any culture. And so uh, Philip goes, and then we get, you know, there's a really tricky uh, aspect to this passage theologically, and it comes uh, in verses 14 through 16. What seems to happen is that there's conversions in Samaria, and they are baptized, we're told, into the name of Jesus, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit. And so the church, the apostles in Jerusalem, send two men, they send Peter and John to Samaria to baptize them in the name of the Holy Spirit, to lay their hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. So this is a strange text that has kept uh, a lot of biblical scholars and theologians up at night trying to make sense of it. This is one of the texts, this is probably the main passage, uh, that has given uh, birth in the Pentecostal movement to the idea that there are two baptisms, right? That there's a baptism by water, and then there's a baptism by the Holy Spirit. Some of you may have grown up or lived within traditions like that that thought there's really two types of Christians, right? There's, there's water-baptized Christians, and then there's Holy Ghost-baptized Christians. But what we see in this passage is not normative anywhere else uh, in the pages of the New Testament. The norm in the New Testament is that baptism is baptism into the name of the Trinity, Right? So Luke is clearly telling us something was wrong with the way this was done the first time. Right? They were baptized into the name of Jesus, but they weren't baptized into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you notice, when we baptize uh, adults or children in our church, we pour water on them, and it's baptism in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. That Christian baptism in different languages and different cultures throughout history is always a Trinitarian baptism. And so what's going on here seems to be that Luke is drawing our attention to something, that God is drawing our attention to something. If this isn't meant to be the way that it normally happens, if normally believers receive the Spirit at their belief and they're baptized into the triune name of God, what's special about what's going on here? Well, a couple of things seem to be at play. The first is that it seems like God and His providence is drawing Peter and John to Samaria. 
that God is working this to get these two apostles into the Samaritan church. I love the irony of this. If you look at Luke chapter 9, uh, one, of the, uh, one of these men, John, actually asked Jesus, after Jesus is rejected in Samaria, he asked them, God, would you, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven against the Samaritans? I don't know where John picked this up. I don't know what about his three years of life with Jesus made him think that this is the kind of thing that Jesus might go in for with him. Jesus, can we call down fire on our enemies now? But he asks. And so I love the irony of the same man who asked for the fires of judgment to fall on the Samaritans, now being involved in the fire of heaven, the fire of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falling on the Samaritans. And that's what seems to be going on, is that Luke is drawing our attention. This is a repeat in some ways of the Pentecost story, that the Samaritan Christians ask for the Spirit, their hand, the hands of the apostles are laid on them, and they receive the Spirit. The message seems to be that what's happened at Pentecost isn't confined to the apostles, and it's not confined to the Jerusalem church, but what happened at Pentecost is for all Christians of every language, of every tribe, of every tongue. That it's not just that the Spirit fell on the apostles for ministry in Jerusalem, but that he continues to fall on all believers everywhere. Yeah. And so these, these Samaritans receive the same Spirit. It's one of the main points that Paul makes in his letters, arguing for the unity of the church, is that it's one Holy Spirit, one Spirit, one body. That it's the same Spirit that falls on all of God's people everywhere. And so we should look for the Spirit to work in all kinds of people, in every corner of the world, Jews and Samaritans alike, across cultural boundaries. You know, it's one of the great challenges and one of the great, I think, invitations of the church in our time is to learn to recognize the movement of the Spirit outside of our own circles of cultural uh, understanding. Right, Even as, and we gave some statistics about the dwindling of the church in America, please don't for a moment think that means the dwindling of the church in the world, because the global church is experiencing unprecedented growth. Right, There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than there are in Scotland, where Presbyterianism started. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria today than there are combined in the United States and the United Kingdom, right? So the church, don't, don't lose sleep over is Jesus building his kingdom, right? Don't lose sleep over is the gospel bearing fruit and growing and is the church multiplying. But so some of what this is going to require of us, those of us who live in the West, is to learn to look and to consider the church globally, to consider the church in our own country across cultural lines. This means, you know, the apostles had to get used to thinking, uh, to not thinking about the church of Jerusalem as the high point and center point of global Christianity. And we, those of us who are inheritors of the Western tradition, those of us who are Protestants, have to learn to recognize that the high point of Christian history was not Wittenberg in the 1500s or Westminster in the 1600s or America in the 1950s, right? That the kingdom growth requires us to look out beyond our own cultural confines.
to learn that the gospel doesn't depend on European, Western, white cultural housing to flourish, and to learn to recognize that we're inheritors of a global faith, that we are the American outpost of a transnational, translinguistic, transcultural kingdom of God, and to learn to celebrate it and to recognize her diverse voices. So it crosses cultural boundaries. It finds its, the gospel finds itself bearing fruit in all cultures. And then finally, we want to see how the gospel also challenges the idols of all cultures. So there's this guy named Simon in our story. Did you, did you notice him? Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Simon, uh, we're told, is a magician who had won quite a following for himself in Samaria through doing wonders. Simon is, uh, when an Israelite, if you asked an Israelite, probably if you asked Philip, hey, what kind of person are you going to run into when you go to Samaria? He would have thought, well, I'm going to run into these chaotic religious beliefs. I'm going to run into weird people doing weird things. I'm going to leave the, the you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to be outside of the world of the religion that I've understood, where even non-Christians basically were monotheists who worshiped in the temple and who obeyed the law. I'm going to be out, you know, in the wild, wild west, culturally speaking. And Simon is exactly the kind of person that an Israelite would have feared they would run into out there. And when he does, when he hears the gospel, the most amazing thing happens. He believes. He repents. He's baptized. But not all of Simon's old way of life get washed away with the waters of baptism, right? Not every bit of his culture, some of it sticks to him. Some of his old way of life continues to animate him such that when he sees Peter and John come and lay their hands on these people and then receive the Holy Spirit, Simon says, ooh, that's pretty cool. I need to get in on that. Hey, John, hey, Peter, how much... Is it going to cost me to get to, for you to teach me your tricks, for you to give me that spirit? And so what seems to be happening with Simon is that he has added Jesus onto a life that was already pretty set in a pretty set direction. In this, you know, uh, we've talked a little bit, we've introduced you guys uh, in different ways to one of our missionaries, Paul Devakmar, uh, who pastors and uh, plants churches in India. And one of the things that Paul has told me over and over is that he said, you know, if you, if you think about uh, the religious life of India, it's an incredibly polytheistic environment, right? Uh, people, there, there are thousands of gods that people devote themselves to. And he, he said, you know what, in evangelism in India, it's not difficult to get people to add Jesus to the shelf of their gods, right? It's not hard for somebody to believe, even to uh, be baptized, and to say, okay, well, Jesus, you take your spot right up there next to Krishna, and I prayed to them on Tuesdays, I'll pray to you on Wednesdays. Uh, I'm going to cover my bases as far as gods go. But that's not conversion, is it? Right? Adding Jesus to the other gods in your life isn't conversion. Jesus says, right, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He calls his disciples to leave everything, 
to set their eyes on him and to become his disciples. And so Simon uh, found himself saying, okay, I'll add Jesus. Oh, cool, there's a Holy Spirit. I'll add that if I can afford it. It's the optional add-on package. I'll get that too, but I'll just keep living my life. And his life was not bent on obedience to Jesus or submission to his spirit. His life was about power. His life was about him being able to display power in order to win followers. One of the th- we talked about the breakdown that's happened and is happening between that alliance between Western American culture and Christianity. One of the real threats of that old alliance was it became very, very difficult for Christians in the West to notice the ways that we've simply added Jesus onto our already full lives. Right? It's easy, right? If you're, if you're in India and you see somebody put a little Jesus statue up next to their other idols... It's, it's clear. But what happens when you just tack Jesus on to a life that's already primarily about the pursuit of power, the pursuit of individual freedom, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of, of privilege, the pursuit of uh, self-expression? Uh, right? One of the things that's been possible for us is just to, to add Jesus onto a life that's already mostly about pursuing cultural power or prestige or wealth. But look, whether it's Samaritan religion, Indian religion, or American lifestyle, Jesus doesn't want to just be tacked on to your life. What he calls us to is a life of repentance, which means laying down our old gods. It means laying down those other places that we've gone to find life and meaning and security and power to lay those things down and not seek to add Jesus to our life, but to submit our life to his agenda, right? And that's what we see happening in this early church movement. These men and women who submitted their life to Jesus, now scattered and sent into every culture, every part of the world as messengers of his gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Uh, The experience of being scattered is never fun. The feeling of being displaced, the feeling of being pushed to the outside is never one that we in our desire for influence and power uh, like very much. But Lord Jesus, you are, we trust, the God who orders history towards your ends. Lord, we pray that you would help us in our generation, in our time, and through our church Uh, to find uh, new ways to be a faithful witness to your kingdom and our culture, to find ways to announce your good news, to live your good news where you've placed us. We pray that as Philip experienced in his ministry, that we would come to know in our lives that there be joy in our city, that there be joy in our place uh, as we bring good news to our neighbors. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you are on your throne that though in this world we may feel afflicted and scattered, that we are never outside of your blessing, that we're never outside of your grace or your rule. And Lord Jesus, that you've promised us uh, that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would breathe new life into the witness and love of your church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.